Some of the scariest hours of my life thus far took place in a waiting room on a December day at a hospital in Iowa City, Iowa. The day started calmly enough. It was the week after Christmas, which meant it was one of those kind of lazy days where everyone's kind of off and things are quiet. Uh, it was snowy, cold in Iowa. We were holed up inside with a sick three-year-old who was vomiting, feverish. That's never fun with little kids, but it happens. We weren't particularly alarmed. Still, after a number of hours of a pretty high fever that didn't seem to be breaking, Jason and I wondered if it was maybe time to seek some help. On the news, people have been talking about the H1N1 swine flu virus. It was kind of a thing at that moment. And so we thought maybe perhaps under the circumstances, we should take our little guy to urgent care. Maybe he needs something more than just fluids and rest. And the urgent care clinic turned into an ER visit, a trip that at the time felt like an annoying abundance of caution that we'd been hoping to avoid. But after arriving at the ER and being shuffled from doctor to doctor, then enduring an ultrasound in which our little guy was seemingly getting sicker by the hour and screaming and writhing in pain during his ultrasound, we were told that our three-year-old needed surgery immediately. While the doctors couldn't verify for sure because his anatomy was too small to show up on the scans, they suspected that Elliot had a ruptured appendix, something very rare for a child that young. But as anyone who's had appendicitis knows, a ruptured appendix is also very serious. It can be fatal if not addressed quickly. The moments before the surgery were a blur. A series of doctors came in to talk to us about the various risks of surgery. An anesthesiologist asked me to sign a waiver saying I understood the complications that could come with giving a three-year-old general anesthesia. You should know, ma'am. We can't predict how children will respond to general anesthesia. Some can respond very strangely. He may be hysterical. He may be listless. He may not remember who you are. Please sign here. So three or four hours after we thought was a fairly routine trip to an urgent care clinic, Jason and I found ourselves in that waiting room as one of the most precious creatures in the world to me lay on an operating table. I was paralyzed with fear. This was just a few months after we'd left all our family, our church community, a city we had called home for years and relocated to Iowa of all places. And at that point, we knew just, we knew a few people in our church, we'd met a few people in the city, but we didn't really know them. All the folks we felt safest with who we would normally call and they would have been there in a heartbeat to sit with us, to watch with us, to wait. They were all hours away. And to make everything even more dramatic, I was also 38 weeks pregnant with my second child, a little girl. While the doctors assured me emergency appendectomies are fairly routine, it was also true that they had rarely performed them on children this small. I'd seen enough episodes of Grey's Anatomy to know this could go badly. There are no guarantees. I didn't watch it for a while after that. As I sat in that waiting room holding Jason's hand, 
I felt the baby move inside me. And it made me sick. As much as I longed to meet that little girl, I could not imagine what would happen to me if the little boy on the table didn't come back. If, God forbid, I lost my first baby, I was sure I'd be done for. How could I possibly receive another? I felt totally helpless in those hours. There was nothing Jason or I could do but wait and pray. My mother had said to me more than once that being a parent is like having your heart walk around outside your body. That day, that statement rung truthfully in a deeper way than I think I had experienced before. My heart was on an operating table. As I think you all know, my son survived the harrowing experience. He was playing the drums for us this morning. My daughter, Junia, was born two weeks later with an appendix-free older brother. But those hours in the waiting room reminded me how vulnerable human life truly is. The doctors confirmed that his appendix had indeed burst that day. If we had waited even a few more hours, the outcome could have been very different. His body was vulnerable. My heart and how tangled up it was in his little life was vulnerable. What do I mean by that word, vulnerable? The word vulnerable comes to us from the Latin word vulnus. And we have this on the screen. You can, we're going to move into the part where some people like to fill in blanks. So you're welcome to do that if you like. The Latin word vulnus means wound. To be vulnerable means to be exposed to wounding. To be able to experience injury. To have the capacity to hurt. Thomas Reynolds is a biblical scholar and a professor of theology at the University of Toronto. He also is a father to a child who's been diagnosed through the years with significant cognitive and behavioral disabilities. His experience as a parent of a child with disabilities gave him a firsthand look at the challenges that the church specifically often has in understanding and practicing ministry with persons with disabilities. With his son, he navigated churches that were uninformed, uncomfortable, unprepared to welcome and include families like his. As a theologian, he recognized that often the church's approaches were unwelcoming in part because the churches didn't even know how to think about chronic illness or disability. Right? In some contexts, the presence of persons who are chronically ill or living with disabilities can feel threatening to people of faith whose understand, it, it threatens people's understanding of who God is, what God does in the world, causing people to wonder things like, is God to blame for someone's perceived suffering? What do ongoing challenges say about the involvement of a good, loving God? In some sectors of the church, people might wonder if God has power to heal, why aren't all disabilities or chronic illnesses miraculously eliminated? Do people just not have sufficient faith? But as Reynolds' work as a theologian and a parent of a special needs child, he, he's now put work into this. And he observes in his work that these questions and concerns really aren't the most helpful starting place when it comes to thinking theologically 
about illness and disability. For him, the starting place is vulnerability. In his book called Vulnerable Communion, Reynolds offers a different perspective. What if persons with chronic illnesses or disabilities aren't the exception to what it means to be human? But what if what is unique about them actually reveals what's most true about the human condition for all of us? That humanity is vulnerable. Perhaps that's the most true thing we can say about the human experience, that it is vulnerable. To be human is to be vulnerable. To be human is to be vulnerable. Humanity is subject to injury. To be human means to be exposed to wounding, to be contingent, to have need. Most of us spend most of our lives focusing on the ways we are strong, the ways we are gifted, the ways we are able. We try to resist, perhaps, the truth that even when we have much to offer, even when we have a wealth of abilities, we are also in our very humanity quite vulnerable, one burst appendix away from a different reality. What if life isn't about being able-bodied, self-sufficient, well? Isn't the reality that all of us are not first and foremost abled or disabled, but rather we are all as human beings vulnerable in a variety of ways. At different times, we come into the world vulnerable creatures. Many of us exit it the same. All of us in need of others in order to thrive. Reynolds suggests this. Personal wholeness, he said, is found not through ability, but through an acknowledgement of vulnerability that is made concrete in relations of dependence upon others. For him, we become more in touch with our humanity when we acknowledge the ways in which we need one another in order to thrive. We need one another physically, we need one another emotionally, we do better in interdependent relationships than when we're on our own. Well, I start with all of this because we're preparing to enter the season of Lent, a time when Christians have traditionally considered the journey of Jesus and the meaning of his earthly life leading up to the climax of his death at Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter. We consider the incarnation, this mind-bending assertion that in Jesus, the divine becomes mundane. God becomes human. And this Lent, I thought it might be interesting to consider together this part of what it means that Jesus was human, specifically that Jesus chose vulnerability. Jesus took on this contingency, this capacity to be wounded that all of us have. If that's true, that the divine intentionally chose to reveal God's very self by revealing God's self as completely vulnerable, what does that mean for our understanding of who God is? What does it tell us about how we can experience God in the places where we are most aware? of our own vulnerability. 
knowing we only have a couple of Sundays in Lent proper because of our schedule, I thought I'd use today, technically the Sunday before Lent begins, to turn our focus onto this topic that we're going to explore in different ways in the weeks to come. So as we consider how this might be true, that Jesus specifically chooses vulnerability, I want to look today at a very famous story, Jesus in the Desert. This is a story that much of the practice of Lent is based on. Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness, praying and fasting. In the same way, the Jesus followers invited into a 40-day season of fasting, praying, other spiritual practices. It's an interesting passage we're going to look at that shows Jesus right at the very beginning of his ministry, right? Right in this like season of initiation, right after he receives this blessing of the divine at his baptism when he rose out of the water and the skies parted and the spirit came to him like a dove and a voice boomed from the heavens. It's so dramatic. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. Right after all that super affirming, strengthening, celebrating, encouraging experience, Jesus lives something very different. So let's look at it together in Luke. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were completed, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to you, I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it, for it has been relinquished to me and I can give it to anyone I wish. So then if you will worship me, all this will be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And with their hands, they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had completed every temptation, he departed from him until a more opportune time. Then Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding countryside. So a couple of quick observations from the top. First, there's this resonance to note of this period of 40 days. 40 is a significant number in Israel's history. And Jesus' 40-day sojourn seems to be rooting itself in that tradition. Noah spent 40 days and nights in the ark while it was raining. Moses spent 40 days on a mountainside with God, fasting and receiving the law. Elijah took a 40-day fast and sojourn to meet with God on a mountain. And of course, the people of God, after being delivered from slavery in Egypt, spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they were brought into the promised land. All of that's important background for what Jesus is doing. 
And it might be worth noting, all of those experiences, when you think about them, were also experiences in which humans connected with the divine from a place of real human vulnerability. Something else that might feel relevant from the beginning is how we're supposed to understand this tempter. So I'm just gonna address this for a moment. Called here the devil, the Greek word is uh, diabolos. That literally in Greek means the accuser. How are we supposed to understand this character? For the purposes of our conversation, I just want to acknowledge that some people may see this differently. For some, it feels really important and significant that we acknowledge the devil as a distinct, created, negative, personal, spiritual being. Others might feel differently, like the character in the story is a personification of evil, perhaps. Maybe not a literal person. I'm not going to make a call on that one way or the other. I just kind of want to acknowledge that. I, it's not that I don't think it's a, an interesting question to consider or even um, an important one in some context, but I don't think it's really the heart of the point here. However you understand the presence of the Diabolos, what seems most relevant to me is that Jesus in this story is struggling with something very real that is counter to faithfulness to God. And that struggle is meant to be instructive for us in our own spiritual struggles. Make sense? All right, so let's get into it, what, the struggle itself. The first challenge Jesus is given is to alleviate his very real hunger. If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The challenge starts with the setup. If you're the son of God, why is that the setup? Remember, this comes just a few verses after the baptism, where those were the words spoken from heaven, this is my son, right? So God has like just announced this reality, and now the tempter is trying to provoke Jesus to use it to his advantage. He's like trying to prompt him to lean into the strength of his position. You've got power at your disposal, son of God. Use it. But Jesus refuses. And here's what I'm saying is kind of, yeah. In his response, Jesus is choosing not to lean into self-sufficiency in this moment, but into dependency. Not self-sufficiency, but dependency. Why do I say that? The key to understanding what Jesus is choosing, counter to every temptation, is what he chooses to respond with, right? He's taking these quotes from the Hebrew Bible, but he's not like doing what maybe some of us might do. Google search Bible plus bread stone, right? What verses come up that might be relevant? No, this guy knows the Torah. It's in him. He's been formed by it in community from his birth. And he is rooting himself in the Torah. Where he chooses to go like what the context of each of those quotes is tells us something about what he's thinking about. Does that make sense? So this first quote comes from Deuteronomy 8. And it was it then, and all of his quotes come in this area of Deuteronomy that was then and remains now for observant Jewish people, a significant part of the Torah that would speak to the Jewish people about how they were now to live now that they were preparing to enter the promised land. 
This is kind of the context of this, you have endured the wilderness, and now we're setting up a new life in a land of your own. This, then, is how we are going to live. It's in, those, in the context of those words, Jesus keeps reaching for instruction. And here's the first quote. I'm going to quote it a little more at length, and you can kind of see where our part comes. You must keep carefully all these commandments I'm giving you today so that you may live, increase in number, and go in and occupy the land that the Lord promised to your ancestors. Remember the whole way by which he has brought you these 40 years through the desert so that you might, uh, sorry, so that he might by humbling you test you to see if you have it within you to keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, making you hungry and then feeding you with unfamiliar manna. He did this to teach you that humankind cannot live by bread alone, but also by everything that comes from the Lord's mouth. Your glory, your clothing did not wear out, nor did your feet swell all these 40 years. Be keenly aware that just as a parent disciplines his child, the Lord your God disciplines you. Jesus' enemy is challenging him to use the power he's been given to satisfy his needs, to become strong. But Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 8 as if to say, yes, I am the son of God, but that doesn't mean I'm entitled to power. It means I'm dependent on my good parent. I need to submit to my parents' teaching. I need to stand in solidarity with the people of God, my heritage, my family. I need to be led by this parent who is lovingly shaping me by teaching me to lean into vulnerability in the same way that God's people learned that in the desert. It's like Jesus recognizes that God didn't want the Israelites to model the toxic self-sufficiency and dominance that had oppressed them in Egypt. They needed a reset so they wouldn't go about now that they are liberated and just do to others what had been done to them. God wanted to help them learn. There was freedom in living simply in trust for their provision, leaning on one another and ultimately on God for their care. Jesus was submitting to that same tradition of trusting the guidance and provision of the divine over what he could do himself. So Jesus says no to satisfying his hunger. He allows himself to hurt in that way. So the accuser tries another tact. The Satan takes Jesus to a mountaintop offers him power over all the kingdoms of the world. He can have control. He can have glory. He can exalt himself. But it's the classic Faustian bargain. To do so, Jesus needs to bow down and worship the prince of darkness. He needs to give himself over to the one who is counter to the divine. And here again, Jesus is being offered the opportunity not to be weak, but to be strong, not to be vulnerable, but to be powerful. It's a temptation that has allured humans, it seems, for time immemorial. This quest for power, this desire to protect ourselves, to mask our capacity for wounding with the amassing of strength. But whenever we do that, Whenever we grasp for power to protect ourselves from our own vulnerable humanity, it seems like the consequences are bad. 
We protect ourselves at the expense of others. We dominate, we oppress. We align ourselves with this evil one who cares not for the flourishing of all creation, but for control. Jesus' enemy is like trying to play on Jesus' human desire for control, for security, for strength. He's baiting this desire by offering this power over earthly kingdoms. But at the same time that this enemy's offer isn't really about granting anything to Jesus, it's really about controlling him. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. All you have to do is let me possess you. Let me feed my own thirst for power by taking the overpower over the Son of God. Once again, Jesus resists. And this is what I think we can gain from him. In his response, Jesus chooses not to grasp for power because he understands this quest for power will ultimately control him. To accept the bargain means he doesn't have control, not really. He is controlled by the bargain itself. So again, Jesus reaches for Deuteronomy. This is just a couple chapters before the passage he quoted before. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only. Take your oaths in his name. That's the quote. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God who's among you is a jealous God. Jesus is rooting himself in the reminder that God's people have spoken to each other for hundreds of years, that they are a people who have been provided for. They have been cared for. They have been given great privilege but it is not something they achieved for themselves. All the good they've received comes from the one they covenanted with. That God has called them into a faithful relationship with God's self. Jesus says no to investing himself in something which might give him the illusion of certainty, but would require him to step away from honoring his dependence on the God he calls his father, and the Jewish people he's come to love and serve. Again, Jesus chooses to remain vulnerable. So round one, round two, go to Jesus and vulnerability. We move to round three. Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And with their hands, they will lift you up so you will not strike your foot against a stone. I like how we see the change of approach here. It's like he's like, hmm, I see you like your Bible, Jesus. You seem to be a big scripture quoter. Well, I also happen to know some scripture. And here we get the battle of the Bible thumpers, right? This time, Satan is speaking the Bible to Jesus. It's not just the other way around. This time, the enemy seems to be tempting Jesus' pride. Specifically, his pride in his heavenly father and his identity in him. He's provoking him to show it off. It's like he's 
saying, okay, okay, I get it. You're all about the devotion to Yahweh. You're going all in with this being the child of the divine, so let's see what this God can do. If this God of yours is so great, he'd keep you safe, right? You could just jump off the building. Angels would grab you after all. I mean, it says something like that in the Bible. The quote he chooses is Psalm 91, which is not meant to be like an instructive, here's how to live. It's a poet describing what it feels like to be cared for by God. Does that make sense? So you could say he doesn't quote in very good context. It's also notable that he's bringing him now to Jerusalem. Did you notice that? We have a change of scenery. We are no longer in the wilderness. We are in the city of God at the high point of the temple. This temptation to prove the might of the divine is in the context of the most sacred space on earth for observant Jewish people like Jesus. This is the place he's come to for festivals every year since he was a baby. And now the enemy is inviting him to, in this sacred place, reveal God's power, do something spectacular, jump from the building, make God show up in a fabulous way for everyone to see. You could say, perhaps, Jesus is like playing it safe by not jumping. I mean, wouldn't the vulnerable choice be to go off the building? (laughs) Wouldn't that demonstrate Jesus' dependence on the divine? But Jesus understands this is a trap. To jump in this scenario wouldn't ultimately be an act of surrender. It would be a challenge of trust. In this scenario, to make that jump is not an act of surrender. It is a challenge of trust. Jesus is like, would be like daring the divine, challenging the divine to show up in a spectacular way, testing God, inviting God to bolster Jesus' image in front of everyone by showing that the Son of God gets perks like this. He again goes back to Deuteronomy 6. This is actually the verse after the last one we looked at. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Now, at Massah, the Hebrews in the wilderness began to mistrust God's provision. They were thirsty, and they doubted that this God who had delivered them from slavery might actually quench their thirst. They started to kind of question if this whole thing was a good idea. Jesus didn't want to stand with those who smugly challenged God's care for them. He wanted to stand with the people who recognized when they wrote it in Deuteronomy that they learned from that experience. Does that make sense? They learned, and they taught their children and their grandchildren that just as God made water flow from rocks at Massah, the divine one cares for us. God will meet our needs. We don't need to test him. They do not need God to show off or prove God's trustworthiness because God already has. So here we see these three opportunities where Jesus was invited to lean into his own abilities, his status as the son of God, grasp control of power, be spectacular in public, and yet every time Jesus demurs, he leans into frailty, dependence, weakness. He chooses vulnerability. And this, I believe, is what he comes to model for his followers. 
Thomas Reynolds, that theologian and parent we spoke of earlier, says this, God's redemptive presence draws near unlike what we might expect. Embedded as we are in systems of relationships that thrive on efficiency, strength, ability, and independence, the self-revelation of God traffics in vulnerability. First as a baby, born scandalously out of wedlock, wrapped tightly in a manger outside during the cold night, later as a wandering preacher with no home, and finally as a crucified criminal. God in Christ is a margin dweller, a stranger in our midst. Perhaps that was what the Apostle Paul was trying to get at when he wrote to the church in Philippi, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus chose to be vulnerable. So what impact might his modeling of vulnerability make on us? Henry Nouwen was a writer and spiritual teacher I've spoken of before. He, he passed about 30 years ago. If you don't know his story, after pastoring, writing, and teaching for many years, he accepted a call to serve in ministry at the L'Arche community in Canada, a community where folks with mental disabilities lived intentionally alongside folks without them. And here's his reflection on some of how that shaped him. I'm going to read this at length because it's a, I think it's really helpful. The first thing that struck me when I came to live in a house with mentally handicapped people was that their liking or disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with any of the many useful things I had done until then. Since nobody could read my books, the books could not impress anyone. And since most of them never went to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard did not provide a significant introduction. Not being able to use any of the skills that had proved so practical in the past was a real source of anxiety. I was suddenly faced with my naked self, open for affirmations and rejections, hugs and punches, smiles and tears, all dependent simply on how I was perceived at the moment. In a way, it seemed as though I was starting my life all over again. Relationships, connections, reputations could no longer be counted on. This experience was, and in many ways is, still the most important experience of my new life because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self. The self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and force me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love regardless of any accomplishments. I think that's the gift of human vulnerability. This is what I believe Jesus was inviting us into by connecting with us through vulnerable humanity. Our vulnerability is not just an unfortunate consequence of our humanity. 
It is an invitation to cooperative life. I'm going to say it again. Our vulnerability is not just an unfortunate consequence of our humanity. It is an invitation to cooperative life. It is how we are somehow made in the image of the divine. It is an invitation to live interdependently, connected to the created world we've been given, the community of vulnerable humans we're surrounded with, and the God who shows up in sacred connection, loving us in our places of need. Vulnerability opens us to real love. Vulnerability opens us to real love. When I was in that Iowa City waiting room, through some of the most terrifying hours of my life, I also did encounter something divine. Even in my terror, I did not feel disconnected from a deeper truth. I felt held by a holy other that was with me in my paralyzing fear. As I cried out to God to save my baby boy, to carry us all through, I felt divine presence surrounding me, and it did not promise a certain outcome, but it mattered. We weren't alone. I also saw Jesus drawing near as I leaned into allowing people to care for me, who I wasn't comfortable accepting care from. I received texts, praying phone calls from people as the word started to spread, people I barely knew. In the nights, we had to remain in the hospital to monitor Elliot and get him the treatment he needed. People brought us food, brought us toys for him, movies, anything they could do to show us love and care. It wasn't because we'd invested in them in some way relationally and they felt like it was our turn. There was no relational equity to spend. It was simply because people saw we needed care. Our vulnerability opened us up to love. Our vulnerability is our access point to the sacred. I believe that. Our vulnerability is our access point to the sacred. This is what I'm inviting us to explore this Lent. As we reflect in this season on the life of Jesus, where do we see his vulnerability making a way for connection with vulnerable humans. And how, as we open to sharing places of vulnerability with one another, might we experience the sacred care of one another and the divine in our midst? So as we end, I just want to uh, offer a couple things you might think of as, as Lent begins, things to be considering ways to enter in. I'm going to send a more exhaustive like, set of resources for people who want some tools to navigate Lent um, later this week. If you're on the email list, you'll get it. If you're not and you're interested, let me know. Um, but just to now, I'm going to give you kind of two things to consider um, about what your Lent could look like. First, consider a fast this Lent that helps you connect with an area of vulnerability in your life. Do you recognize certain kinds of foods you eat or beverages you consume or social media practices you engage in um, that kind of help you detach from the places you feel vulnerable? Kind of mask that, kind of cover that up a little bit. 
what would it mean to choose one of those things and just take a break from it so that you don't kind of have that coping mechanism in place. You're more aware of your vulnerability. What might that look like for you? The second I'm inviting you is to consider sharing a vulnerability story. Do you live with a disability that impacts your body, your mind, your emotional self? Do you struggle with depression? Do you feel vulnerable in your relationships, in your faith? What might it mean for us as a community to be able to share some of those stories with one another as a way of deepening connection and affirming that each of us has real needs and we as a community want to value and validate each other's needs. I want to be clear, this is completely invitational and the intention is not to turn anyone's gaze in a voyeuristic way. The intention is to invite one another into our real challenges and to experience um, the power of others saying, like, those challenges have dignity. I see that. I'm with you in that in whatever way I can be. So I'm asking a lot of our community to even consider engaging in a practice like this throughout Lent. But that's kind of what I'm asking. Could we be vulnerable together in that way by naming? This is a vulnerability I have, and it's challenging. There are different ways that could look. I'm thinking I'm going to be doing an extra email, again, with some practices. I may include some stories of vulnerability that I've been researching, stories of disability that could be helpful, et cetera. Um, stories like Henry Nowens that come from outside of our community. But if there are people within the community who want their story to kind of be shared in that forum, it could even be anonymously. Um, that's a possibility. There will also be um, the opportunity for maybe a couple people to share here on Sundays over the next few Sundays in Lent, if you would like to do that in that context. So think about it. Again, it's not an issue, of, a thing of pressure, but it's an invitation to kind of embody vulnerability with one another. So those are my invitations. I'm going to end by inviting Jesus to be present with us and speaking to us about these things and about the Lenten journey we're going to take, okay? So why don't you pray with me? Oh, Spirit, we invite you, sacred one, who comes to us as a wounded God. May we meet you in the places we feel frail, in the places we have to acknowledge, perhaps we fear to acknowledge, our own vulnerability, our own capacity for wounding. May we experience something powerful as we acknowledge those vulnerabilities. May we experience something of you bringing redemption, bringing life, interdependence, community, love. Would you lead us on that journey this Lent? Would you be speaking to us as we worship about what you might be inviting us to lay down over these six weeks? Or what story you might be inviting us to tell? 
Would you give us the courage to do those things? Would you accompany us on the Lenten journey? Thank you that you were compelled by the Spirit into the wilderness, that the Spirit was with you every moment. Would that same Spirit fill each of us?